Recently, just a few days ago, put me on a new medication for my cholesterol, and the nurse who gave it to me warned me that the initial symptoms might be, quote, flu-like symptoms. She said, you might get a little runny nose, you might get kind of congested, you might... Well, she wasn't kidding, and I've got a sore throat, and I'm congested, And wouldn't you just know that right in the middle of flu season, when everybody I know and everybody I'm surrounded with has some version of the flu or knows somebody who has the flu, they would give me a medication that would give me flu-like symptoms. And so now I don't know if I actually am getting the flu or if I'm having flu-like symptoms from my medication. Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease because I was walking around perfectly happy with my cholesterol. I had no problem with my cholesterol. I was happy with my cholesterol until my doctor decided, we got to do something about that. And now I have flu-like symptoms. 
And so bear with me. Although my wife did point out, she said, you know what happens. You're going to get up there and preach and you're going to feel better again. So I'm counting on God meeting me here at the pulpit. And if I feel better again, I might preach right through the Super Bowl. And, uh, and that'll show you all. We'll find out who the really dedicated folks are. Maybe you'll be by yourself. That's right. I, I might be by myself. <laughs> Turn to First Peter chapter 3. At the end of last week, I told you that the next section of this chapter contains some of the most difficult to both translate and interpret passages in all of the New Testament. Commentator after commentator has taken the time to say these are really difficult sentences, mostly because Peter is writing about really complex things. He's talking about Noah, and he's talking about being saved through the water, or is he saying saved by the water? And then he's going to liken that to baptism, and then he's going to say that baptism saves us, a favorite passage of Church of Christ everywhere. And so he's talking about really deep and complex ideas, but he doesn't explain them. He just says it. He just draws the correlation and then keeps going. And as a consequence, I've brought a couple of different bits and pieces, paragraphs out of various commentaries, just to show you how people have tried to figure this out. Now, I had to decide the best way to approach this section of 1 Peter because I could bore you to tears by reading you all the different various interpretations and understandings that all the different interpreters have come to. And then by the time I got done, you would be completely confused. You'd be completely boggled, and you'd be saying to me, fine, Jim, I get that there's all these different interpretations. Which one's the right one? And the answer is, uh, it's not really genuinely that clear what the right one is, but I am going to refer to Ellicott's commentary for English readers because he did the best job of summarizing the various different views and finally coming to the one that he felt was most consistent with the original Greek text. Now, in the original Greek text, the word baptism does show up, but it doesn't show up in the same place in the sentence that our English translations do. So all English translations, in order to make it proper English grammar have changed the word order. And so Ellicott takes that into consideration as he comes to his conclusion. So there's a few complexities here that we're going to have to deal with this morning. I'm going to do my best to simplify them. I think if I have any gift where it comes to teaching and preaching, I have the ability to kind of simplify difficult things and the ability to complicate simple things. So it's a gift. And, <laughs> but that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to give you what I think is the best understanding of what Peter is getting at. And then if you have a different view, if you have a different interpretation, a different translation, a different approach to it, that's fine because I'm just finding the one that I think is the most consistent with the language, and with the flow of what Peter's saying. At some point, I had to go back to what is the context and then try to fit meaning into the context. So, so we are going to start reading at chapter 3, verse 13, right around there. And then we will build up speed to get to the passages that are the more difficult passages. But it's important that you see Peter's context. Verse 13 says, But who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. 
but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience. Last week when we came across that phrase, I said, tattoo that to your brain, make sure you remember it, because he's going to bring up that idea of a good conscience again. And we're going to have to talk a little bit about what Peter apparently means by that phrase. So keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Hold on to that phrase that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Because in a little while, Peter is going to make reference to our death and our suffering the way that Christ suffered all the way to death so that we will reckon the old man, the fleshly man, to be dead so that we are awake to the spirit, so that we are alive in the spirit. So Peter is continuing, I only point that out to say, he is continuing to build arguments contextually, and that is going to help us understand what he's about to say. All right, here's the first difficult phrase. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. What is that about, Peter? During the three days and three nights that Christ was in the grave, he told us that he was going to descend into the belly of the earth. He made that proclamation. What he was doing there in the belly of the earth, or what activity, what was said, what he did, is not explained to us anywhere in the Bible. Instead, it's just kind of hinted at. Now, what we do know is that all the people who say that Jesus went to hell because he had to pay some kind of price to Satan, they're just wrong. That is a very popular word of faith, name it, claim it kind of theology where people will say, well, he descended into hell because he owed Satan some kind of debt because of the sinfulness that God placed on him or some convoluted idea like that. Be very clear, Jesus owed Satan nothing. Amen. Jesus is the son of God and Jesus already suffered under God's punishment. He owed Satan nothing. So we know that's not why he went into the belly of the earth for three days. But we do get clues like the fact that we're told that when he ascended, he led captivity captive. Now, whatever that phrase means, it implies that when he got up out of the grave, he also took spirits that were in the belly of the earth with him as he ascended into the heavens. Now we also know that Peter is going to give us a little clue about what he was doing. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 6 for a moment. Because Peter says this rather cryptic thing, for the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who were dead as though they are judged in the flesh as men and that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Okay, so now we know that the gospel has been preached even to those who were dead. Verse 19 of chapter 3 said, in the which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits in prison. So the picture appears to be, especially if you put it together with 
Jesus' story of Lazarus and the rich man, which Jesus does not say is a parable. He speaks of it as a present reality that Lazarus, when he died, went to Abraham's bosom. But while he was there, he saw the rich man who was in flames of torment. They were both in Sheol. They were both in the belly of the earth. One part of that is referred to as paradise. The Greek concept of Sheol, the grave, was that it was divided into two sections. There was the good part, which the Hebrews would refer to as Abraham's bosom, and there was the bad part, which Jesus described as flames of hell. There was a gulf fixed between the two, but apparently some sort of communication between the two, according to Jesus. So if that's the case, these that are in Abraham's bosom are those who died before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection who are being held in a safekeeping in the bosom of Abraham until their sins are ultimately paid for, in which case Peter seems to be implying that Jesus then went there to proclaim the good news that he had actually died for them paid the price for sin, and that he was going to resurrect and take them with him because also we're told in the Gospels that when he resurrected, many of the saints that were asleep walked and talked in Jerusalem again. So there was some kind of general resurrection. There was some kind of life-giving force that was a result of the resurrection of Christ. And so by putting all these pieces together, we get the idea that Jesus, while he was in hell, since he wasn't paying a price to Satan, was there doing the very thing that God had determined that he would do, which was proclaiming the good news to the captives so that he could take the captives captive to himself so that he could bring them now, having died and buried and resurrected, he could then take them to their heavenly destiny. That is also why he could say to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me today in paradise. Well, we know that Jesus didn't go straight to the Father. We know that he went for three days into the belly of the earth. So then how could he say, you'll be with me in paradise? Well, because he was speaking of Abraham's bosom. Today you'll be with me in the safekeeping place, which is what all the Jews would have understood and what Greco-Roman theology understood, or at least cosmology understood, of what happens to people after they die. Okay, that is my best understanding of what Peter is getting at. Apparently, this was more common knowledge than it is today because Peter just says it and keeps moving because he's got something even more complicated to say that, again, I assume his original audience would have just gone, oh, yeah, Peter, we know that. We, we get that. But somewhere in the last 2,000 years, we've kind of lost the reference points that Peter is getting at here. So far, am I making sense? Yes. Okay. Has anyone got any difference with that? Yes, George. Um, can you give us a reference to where in the Bible the phrase the bosom of Abraham is used? It, it, one or more than one is sufficient. I just It's not in this passage, so where is it? Right. When Jesus talks about Lazarus and the rich man, he says specifically that Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom. So anybody know what passage that is? Anybody know where to find that? A whole bunch of Bible scholars looked at me as a group and shook their head. Somebody was saying Luke 16, I believe. Luke 16, okay. Okay, well, that's where you'll find it. Yes, ma'am. What do you mean Abraham's bosom? The idea is that the place that Abraham would have gone when he died would have been a safe place because he was the first, the father of faith. He was the first of all the people who was justified because of his faith in what God said. And so he is the father of all the faithful, according to Paul. So we know that he was, to use a common term, that he was saved, but we're going to have to talk about that term too. He was redeemed. He was justified 
because of his faith. So being the first of the people who were among the saved group like that, well, then when he died, he wasn't taken to flames of torment. He was taken to a holding place, a safe place. And that became known among the Jews and in the language that Jesus uses as the bosom of Abraham, which means the same way that we read that John at the Last Supper laid on Jesus' bosom. It just means his chest, just laying back on him. It's a safe place. And so Abraham's bosom would be a safe place. It just means to be in the place where Abraham was. So if you're going to the place where the justified man was, then you're safe. You're okay. So that's essentially what that phrase means. Luke chapter 16, verse 22, says the Bible scholar in green. Go ahead, read it. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lift up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So there you get the bosom of Abraham a couple of times. Now, as I said, I'm just trying to piece together kind of like a detective story, take all the elements, put them together, and try to make sense of it. But for whatever reason, the Bible, especially the New Testament, doesn't spell it out. It just kind of drops breadcrumbs along the way, and we kind of have to piece them together. Yes, ma'am? Not to make it more complicated, uh, but I will. Um, Is there any significance to it being called Hades instead of hell, or are those interchangeable? Yeah, Hades is the Greek word for it. Uh, the Hebrew word would be Sheol, and just through modern lexical use, we call it hell. Same idea. Is the lake of fire a worse hell? Lake of fire is a worse thing because the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. After the final judgment by God, lake of fire, which was made specifically, we read, for the devil and his angels. So it's a place of torment that then humans are sent to as well. But it was made for the devil and his angels. So, yes, that's a different thing. Whereas Hades, the underworld, the Sheol, is the holding place of the dead having died. But the final white throne judgment hasn't happened yet. So they're being held. So there's a whole lot going on here in the grand cosmos of God that we are not familiar with. Yes, sir, you had your hand up. I was just curious in verse 19 and 20 where it says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient. When Jesus went down, we know the effect he had on the people in Abraham's bosom. It seems like they rose up with him. But was he also possibly preaching the gospel in a different sense to the people? Why are you reading ahead? I thought we were talking about that. (laughs) Because now we're going to get into spirits that are in hell because they were disobedient during the time of Noah. So let's read the next statement. I told you, it's it's going to get worse. It gets more complicated. In which he went and made proclamation to the spirits. The word now is added by the NASB, by the spirits in prison is all that it says in the Greek. The word now implies that maybe those spirits are there right now, here in 2018. But when Peter was writing, he was speaking of spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay. How many years was that? 120 years it took to build the ark. So for 120 years, Peter argues, God waited patiently, and these people continued in their disobedience, even though Noah, a preacher of righteousness, was demonstrating to them that God was going to destroy the world by water, and not a one of them changed, not a one of them repented, and so God, in his patience, reached the point where he brought the flood after 120 years and only saved eight people through the water. Now, notice he's not saying they were saved by the water because 
Noah and his family were not saved by the water. They were saved by the ark. The ark went through the water, which is why he specifically says they were saved through the water. So there were people who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Notice also, by the way, that Peter takes Noah as a reality. Just like Jesus took Noah as a reality. Some folks today say, well, Noah, that's a good story. It's an emblematic story. It it needs to be understood spiritually. It's not something that actually happened. Come on, worldwide flood. Maybe it was a little regional flood somewhere, but destroying everybody, that didn't happen. This is all meant to tell us something. It's allegorical. Peter took it quite literally. Peter understood that eight people were saved and everybody else was destroyed through the flood. So now to your question, Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits who were now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting after the days of Noah. So what was the proclamation? We saw from chapter 4, verse 6, that at least the gospel was preached to some of them. But possibly it was also Jesus proclaiming that the disobedience that they were guilty of was a disobedience that God was completely in charge of and that he was the judge of them and that sure enough the type of Noah's flood and the destruction of the evil was now fulfilled in his death burial and resurrection which Peter is going to get to in a minute so maybe that was the proclamation I have to in the midst of saying these things keep adding words like maybe could be Because Peter says this and then doesn't extrapolate. And I wish he had. And I have questions. And if for no other reason I want to go to heaven. Just to say to Peter, what was that about? Because obviously he's building what he considers a really important theological connection here. But he doesn't explain it. Because then he says... And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Corresponding to, that word corresponding to in the NASB is actually the word antitupos, in the Greek, from which we get the word antitype. You've heard me talk before about type antitype. Things in the Old Testament typify something else, and then when you find the figure that it's actually typifying, that's the antitype. Well, that's what Peter says baptism is, that baptism is the antitype of the type of the flood of Noah. But the only connection to the two appears to be water. And we know that the water didn't save Noah. The water killed everybody in Noah's case. And the ark saved Noah through the water. But then the antitype, according to Peter is that baptism now saves you. Now, all the folks who believe in baptismal regeneration will go straight to that verse and say, now baptism saves you. Just take it completely out of context and say, baptism saves you. But there is nothing in the whole rest of the Bible that would imply that baptism actually saves you in a redemptive fashion. But how did the ark save Noah? It kept him away from the water and kept him physically alive. But there's nothing in the Noah story that says that the ark redeemed and justified Noah. You understand what I'm getting at? So this word sozo, which is translated salvation, throughout the Bible, again, you have to look at the context in which it's used because sometimes it's talking about redemption, justification, and sometimes it's talking about being saved from death. And so in Noah's case, he was saved from death, the death that everybody else died. He was saved from that death, brought safely through the water. And the antitype to that, 
baptism now saves you. Okay, in what way does it also save you? We know that baptism is not the means of redemption, justification, regeneration. We know that baptism doesn't do that. So in what way does it save you? Well, among the Jews, they had a a whole series of washings, baptisms. When you see the word baptism, just realize that it's just a Greek word that has not really been translated. It has been transliterated into the English language, baptizo, versions of that, baptismos, all that. And what it means is to dip, to submerge, to make something wet. It was the same word that was used for the dyeing of garments. You'd put a garment under the dye in the water. It would come out a different color. And so sometimes I think we see the word baptism and we think, oh, that's a a high and holy biblical word. It's actually a real common word for putting something underwater, for getting something wet. You could baptize dishes, pots, and pans. And the word is used that way in common Greek. You just put it under the water. And so he is getting at the idea that the antitype to Noah and the flood is that baptism somehow saves you alive, not by the removal of dirt from your flesh, which is typical of Jewish baptism. The Jews had all these ceremonial washings, all these things that they had to do. At the tabernacle in the wilderness, the first piece of furniture that the priests had to approach before they went into the tent was something called the laver of cleansing, sometimes referred to as the sea. It was a large bowl full of water held up by statues of oxen, and the bowl laid on its back, or laid on their back. And the priest had to go and wash in that water until he could see in his reflection in the burnished brass that he could see that he was clean, ceremonially clean, before he even went before God. The same way that the uh, Pharisees tried to accuse Jesus' apostles of eating corn out of a field that they had plucked with unwashed hands. Because they would always wash, constantly cleanse themselves ceremonially before they would eat, before they would do anything. So Peter's making a distinction here between the Jewish concept of baptism by saying not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's not what I'm talking about. The kind of baptism I'm talking about is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, what's all that mean when you put it all together? Kenneth Woost, who you know I like, I have Woost several volume word studies in the Greek. He also has an expanded translation of the New Testament that I like, and he says... Water baptism is clearly in the apostle's mind, not the baptism by the Holy Spirit. For he speaks of the waters of the flood as saving the inmates of the ark. And in this verse of baptism, somehow saving believers. But he says that it saves them only as a counterpart, as an antitype. That is, water baptism is the antitype of the reality which is salvation. It can save as a counterpart, but it doesn't save actually. For instance, the Old Testament sacrifices were counterparts of the reality who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices did not actually save the believer. They only did it typically in type. Okay, that's how he deals with it. Ellicott's commentary for English readers says this. I told you as I was uh, doing my opening comments that he took the time to list the various understandings and translations, but he comes up to this at last. He says the last understanding seems to be the best. The last seems both the clearest in itself and the best antithesis to the balancing clause and the most in keeping with the context. So then it would read, Noah's flood, in antitype, to this day saves you. That is, baptism, which is no cleansing of the skin from dirt, 
but is an application to God for a clear conscience. A good conscience in this case will not mean an honest frame of mind, but a consciousness of having nothing that is against you, such as would come to even the chief of sinners from the remission of sins. Conscience is used in this retrospective sense four times in the book of Hebrews, and indeed it means in 1 Peter 3.16, having nothing on your mind because of the past rather than the idea being sure that you mean well. And how well that suits the context. The apostle from 1 Peter 3.13 to 1 Peter 4.6 is uttering the praises of a clear conscience and warning from everything that could defile it. With this, with this clear conscience, Peter seems to say, you cannot be harmed. With this, you will always be ready to defend the faith when you are called to account. It was because he had this that Christ was able to atone for you and bring you to God and to conduct his mission to the dead and to give by his resurrection an efficacy to your baptism. And that baptism itself only saves you by the fact that in it you ask and receive the cleansing of conscience. So in the end, I think what Peter is getting at Conscience is the whole idea. He's brought up clear conscience a couple of times. That idea of conscience is not, well, I perceive that I'm doing pretty good. That's usually what people mean by a good conscience or a clear conscience. Instead, what he's getting at is a realization that nothing from your past can hurt or harm you anymore because of Christ's once for all salvation. He died, the just for the unjust, Therefore, you can go to God with a clear conscience about the fact that Christ has taken care of your sin debt completely. As a result then, since the end result is the clear conscience, you then had a baptism. You were baptized into Christ because of questions you were asked and answers you were given. Now, this is what Peter gets at. One more thing. I've got to show you one more quick thing. The word appeal to God for a good conscience, that word appeal is actually a word that means to inquire, to ask, and to answer back. So this seems to imply that when people were baptized in the New Testament, and I still do it today because of uh, early accounts that I have read of baptism, When you were baptized, you were asked a series of questions. You were inquired of. And the answers you gave were the basis for the Christian church accepting your baptism and that you should be baptized, that you would answer those questions correctly. So with that idea, Peter says that you are going to have an appeal to God or a question and answer to God for a good conscience. So, baptism is the antitype of the flood of Noah. The only connection appears to be water, but your baptism now saves you the same way that Noah was saved through the water because God is in the business of saving people, and your baptism saves you in that you went through the questions and answers that lead to a clear conscience. That appears to be what Peter's getting at. Anything else anybody's got from that section? Because I am perfectly willing to entertain any other understanding of it. Because Peter just says it, he just puts it out there, and then he walks away from it. He uses it as the basis for further discussion, but he doesn't clarify it. And as I said, commentator after commentator talk about how in the Greek, it's difficult. It's convoluted. It's hard to know where the sentences start and stop. It's difficult to know exactly what Peter was getting at. I have a whole five more paragraphs I can read you from Barnes Notes about 
what sort of baptism he was talking about here, and that it does also save you. The water saved Noah and his family from perishing in the flood, to wit, by bearing up the ark. So baptism, in the proper sense of the term, as above explained, where the water is used as a symbol in a like manner now saves us. That is, the water is an emblem of that purifying by which we are saved, so that we end up with a clear conscience. Uh, commentator after commentator will continue to struggle and explain what Peter was getting at. I just want to show you the complexity of it and give you my best understanding of it. Did I see another hand? Yes, George. It sounds like... What you're saying is, and, I, and I'm, I'm asking perhaps, is this sort of where the salvation, I mean the um, uh, sovereign grace theology comes down, that baptism is emblematic of salvation rather than sacramental? Completely. The, Completely. Baptism takes place in the physical body, but unless something has happened in the spiritual body, it's not means nothing. All you did was get wet. Yeah. That's why we call it believer's baptism. Is people who have made a good profession of their faith in Christ should be baptized. But it's also why we don't baptize children or unbelievers. We don't just baptize willy-nilly because throughout the New Testament, baptism into Christ is emblematic of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Right, and Peter's going to get into that in a minute, that the same way that Christ died in the body, remember I said hold on to that, and then was raised in the spirit, he's now going to get into we reckon ourselves dead so that we can live to the spirit. Yes. Any other questions? Are we good? Okay, that's my best understanding of what Peter is getting at. Now let's read it again in its entirety so that we can kind of see the flow of his argument because it matters because he's still building to his point. So here he goes. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to faith in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In, yes. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Okay, the reference to powers and authorities and even, I think, angels there is a reference to demonic beings. I don't think he's saying that the angelic powers and authorities were subject to him. The three days that he was in the belly of the earth during that period, even the demonic spirits were subjected to him. So whatever he was doing during those three days in the belly of the earth, he was also demonstrating his absolute power, his absolute authority. He also was able to not only go into the belly of the earth, but to leave there, which none of them could do. And so that is a demonstration of his power and his authority. That is also, I think, why he could say that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Because Jesus has the authority, has the power over the demonic realm, over hell, over heaven, over all people. He has absolute sovereign power. So he is right now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. These are the same words, by the way, that Paul uses when he says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this world. 
And so I believe that Peter, in the largest picture, is saying that Jesus, during his three days between his death and his resurrection, was making proclamation to the spirits in prison, showing his power, his authority, over those who had been disobedient during the time of Noah, who were being held there until their ultimate judgment, and at the same time, he was showing his authority and his power over those who believed demonically that they had authority or power in the world. That's my best understanding of what Peter seems to be saying. Head of all creation. All principalities and powers. Absolutely. Now, I will say, just before we get into chapter 4, okay, that's deep. Yeah, that's deep, heavy, and spiritual on a level that most of us just don't deal with. Because Jesus, as I've said time and time and time again, isn't like us, and we are not like Jesus. And we are easily distracted by the cares and the worries of this world, this physical plane, this bothersome planet that we're on, these physical bodies that we have to live in, that get sick, that get old, that die... It's difficult for us to understand the spiritual level and the spiritual plane that Jesus was always dealing with. When was the last time the Spirit of God drove any of you into the wilderness for 40 days so that you could not eat anything until you were at your weakest physical point so that Satan himself could come tempt you with the kingdoms of this world. When did that happen to any of you last? But it happened to Jesus. Because he had to go through that spiritual level of temptation in order to be tempted in all ways such as we are and yet without sin. He was tempted directly by Satan because as our substitute, he had to go and conquer the temptations of Satan for us because we're all going to fall prey to it. So he was constantly, while he was here on the planet, constantly dealing on a completely different spiritual plane than we do. We get sidetracked by Nintendo. We get sidetracked. I knew that one would get. We get sidetracked by the cares of this world. We get a a flu, a bug, and we want to die. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're just fed up with this life. We have never endured the kind of difficulty and hardship that Christ endured. None of us have ever endured the wrath of God. None of us have ever been nailed to a plank of wood. None of us have ever gone through the beatings, though we knew we were personally righteous. None of us ever had the authority that Christ has that he could speak things into existence and yet keep his mouth shut while he let his own creatures beat him and pluck his beard out and spit on him. None of us have ever gone through that. Okay, he was dealing on a completely different spiritual plane than we are. And that seems to be what Peter was getting at at the end of chapter 3, making reference to things that we just don't know a lot about, that he was there preaching to the spirits in prison making proclamation to them. And that afterwards, when he had risen to heaven, he had shown himself to be above all of the powers and authorities and angels in hell. So we have to remember sometimes that this Christian thing is a whole lot broader and a whole lot deeper than just give me another good day. It's nice that he feeds us regularly. It's nice that he gives us clothes to wear. It's nice that he gives us occasional blessings and walls around us and a roof over our head. It's nice that he does all that, but he is also dealing with the entire cosmology of God. Heaven, hell, and earth is all under his dominion, and he is constantly, authoritatively, sovereignly in charge of all of that and dealing with it. Take As a reality for a moment, the idea that Satan does day and night accuse the brethren. We say that kind of flippantly. Yes, well, Satan's day and night accusing the brethren. 
But in the high court of the high and holy one, the only righteous one, the only perfect one, the one who is encased in light sitting on his throne, Satan is constantly telling God how sinful and impure you are. That's a reality. That's going on. Which is why equally we also hear from John that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's the necessity of our advocate. That is why we have somebody pleading our case at the throne of God, because Satan is accusing us at the throne of God. These are spiritual realities that we just don't think about. We go through our little life, driving up and down the freeway, doing our jobs, just going through life, not thinking about the fact that there is warfare in the heavenlies for the souls of men, including for your soul, for your eternal well-being, and that your Savior didn't just save you from sin. He didn't just die and resurrect so that you could go to heaven, but he is in the constant enterprise of keeping you saved despite you, despite you doing everything you can to gum it up. So there are spiritual realities that are much broader and deeper than we give regular thought to. And that seems to be what Peter is getting at. Yes, Gladys? They've never really been explained to us. We just have bits and pieces of information of what's going on. That's right. It's never fully been explained to us. But you know... God's only got eternity to explain that to us. What we've got in the Bible is what we need to know to get us from here to there. But let's not think that when we get there, we're automatically going to have all knowledge. He's got all eternity to teach us the rest of what he wants us to know. We've just begun. We're just babes in this thing. Chapter 4, verse 1 says... Therefore, which means that Peter is basing the continuation of his argument on all that stuff that we just read. That entire section of the end of chapter 3 is the basis on which Peter is about to make this argument. Therefore, knowing all that, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, how did Christ suffer in the flesh? All the way to death. And he who has suffered in the flesh, I think he's saying those who have died to your fleshliness have ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There's that same idea. Christ died in the flesh. He was raised spiritually. In like manner, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Notice that living a right life Notice that a life that reflects Christ in your behavior is something that you have to purpose yourself to do, that you live for this same purpose, that you recognize that Christ died in the flesh and lived again because of the Spirit of God. You, therefore, in your baptism, in the typification of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you are dying to your flesh and you are rising again to walk by the Spirit in the newness of life. So that becomes your purpose. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past, okay, now remember he's talking to the diaspora. Remember that he's talking to folks who were living among the Gentiles. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. What's the desire of the Gentiles? To live godless lives. 
And he's saying, while you were scattered among the Gentiles, you have lived like the Gentiles. You have been like the Gentiles. But now, that's past. Now you reckon yourself dead. Now you are dead to the flesh. Now you are living in the spirit, in Christ Jesus, with a clear conscience before God, recognizing that all that past stuff has gone away. So the time has already passed, and it is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousals and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and so they malign you. That's about as true today as it's ever been. Amen. The world still wants you to run with them because there's power in numbers. They feel better if you just act like them. Now, by the way, the word that is translated dissipation right here is actually a version of that word sozo that I talked about earlier, and it has the alpha negative on the front of it. So basically, that word is unsaved. Don't act like the unsaved. For the time already is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, and then he tells you what the desire of the Gentiles is. You pursued a course of sensuality, of lust, of drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. All of this, Peter says, is acting like you're not saved. And so they are surprised, since you used to act like that, that now you do not run with them into that same excess of unsavedness. And so they malign you. He's getting at what he's always gotten at. He's getting at the fact that you're going to be accused for your righteousness. And that accusation, you must remember when you're accused, that Christ himself, the just one, was accused and was beaten and was killed. Use him as your example. Though there was no fault or sin found in him, nevertheless men hated him enough to kill him. Use that as an example for the way that you walk in this world. But they, verse 5, but they, having maligned you, shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has, for this purpose, the judgment of the living and the dead. For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. So be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For the purpose of prayer, but above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, and as each has received a charismata, a spiritual gift, a special gift, whatever gift you have, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It is the manifold grace of God that has given you the gifts that you then can serve in the church with and serve one another with and serve the community of the believers and the saints with. So whoever it is that speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do it as by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion, which I think he's demonstrated aptly here, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So I hope that we've made some sense of a difficult passage of Peter. I hope you see the flow of his argument. I hope you understand the, the Jewish background, the Jewish mindset that he's coming from in making reference to several of these things. And I hope that the end result of everything you've heard this morning is that you understand that Peter is saying, 
okay, enough of the way you used to be. Now that you're in Christ, now that you have a clear conscience before God, now that you've been baptized into Christ, walk accordingly, live accordingly, serve one another, love one another, be kind to one another because God was very good to you. That seems to be the argument. Got it? I hesitate to ask. Any questions? Go ahead, Micah. No? Wow. I'm stunned. Alex? No, I was just saying you're saying. <laughs> I saw you waving your arms back there. I didn't know if that was a, a call or anything at all. All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.